Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. And uh, again, as I mentioned, uh, or we mentioned last week, uh, yes, it's, it is Advent season. <laughs> this is going to sound like Easter season real quickly as we see the uh, passage for uh, today. But as the Lord would, would have it with our First Corinthians series ending at this time, of course, all of these things form a beautiful chain, the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection linked together as the uh, the hub, the centerpiece of our salvation, our relationship with God and his work in in the world. Uh, but we will look today at First Corinthians chapter 15. And let me remind you of kind of where where we have been as we come into the last just the last couple of weeks of this series. We started, I think, back in August, uh, walking through the scripture again. We should take great encouragement from uh, having worked through this book of the Bible, being hopefully generally familiar with its contents, being here on a somewhat regular basis, so weekly or maybe every week. That uh, that God has ministered that part of his word to us and as helpful as it is for us to have a variety of passages from around scripture, maybe that we know and are familiar with to to be familiar with the full scope, at least of what this uh, this book teaches uh, we looked at the early pages of this book and, and studied the, the folly of man versus the wisdom of God. We saw early on in chapters two and three, the divisions and cliques that were prone to, to form uh, between one another instead of the unity that we can have in Christ. We saw the contrast between the superstar or the hired hand superstar preacher or the hired hand chaplain and the faithful pastor. We saw the danger of judgmentalism versus the danger of failing to judge in grace through mutual discipline. We saw the the beauty of uh, marriage or celibacy, depending on God's call versus the corruption of sexuality in our culture. We saw the rights we have in Christ versus the rights we surrender to others to reach others for Christ. We saw the uh, the com- contrast, the comparison between the role that God has given us as men and women as equal but uh, distinct in his purposes versus the gender confusion of our time. And then in just the last couple of weeks, getting closer to where we are today, we see the spiritual gifts that we're called to use for the building up of the body of Christ rather than elevating one gift over another or fearing, feeling perhaps shameful because we don't have the gifts that others do. And now today we turn to this matter, the central matter of the resurrection and its purpose in the people of God, in their lives and in the kingdom of God. And we'll take two weeks to cover this uh, chapter, so don't, don't be too uh, worrisome. We'll just go through verse 20 today. Uh, read along with me as I read aloud uh, the next part of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 20. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That means died. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. From the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. Or if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped for Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the monumental truths of our salvation and our relationship with God. It is difficult for us to envision a world, Lord, where we don't have at least some knowledge of things like the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection. But as we sit here today, we realize that these are things that you chose to carry out. Didn't have to be done, but you chose to bless, to redeem, to rescue. And so we have that in mind today, this Christmas season with the incarnation and in the part of the scriptures we're studying now with the resurrection. And we pray that you would show us again afresh and transform us in new ways by the reality of these things. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, the early part of this week, in the uh, space of about 36 hours, I had the extreme pleasure of getting to go to three different doctor's appointments. Don't worry, they think I'm still going to be kicking for a while longer. Uh, we just met the old deductible, you know. So if there's any Blue Cross Blue Shield employees here, just, just tune out. And so we decided to get by and make sure we've all been checked out. I won't go into all the details of what I had done, because you don't want to hear it, and I don't want to share. But I will say this, after 13, 14 years of being a pastor in a particular city and having met a number of people in the medical profession, you meet those folks and run into them in the darndest places. You really do. You really do. Well, you got a little time if you've uh, been to the doctor lately. They like to, you know, build suspense, I guess, for the visit with them, whether it's 30 minutes or 45 sitting in that waiting room. 
And uh, I know I'm a pastor, so maybe I think about weird things, but you're sitting around there with other people and you're all there basically because you got something that needs to be checked out or something wrong. Right. It's a it's a collection of people that are gathered together and you're all acknowledging by your very presence there that the body doesn't work the way it's supposed to, that you need a new body in a sense, that you need a heavenly body. It's a reminder I guess more on the negative side of mortality, of the fact that this thing that God has given to us through the fall and through the brokenness of this world is not perfect, that it needs to be redeemed. It needs to be rescued. Well, maybe it's not the doctor's visits that make you think of that. Maybe you're younger here today. And it's just a reminder, you get injured out playing with your friends, get a little banged up, and you realize you're not as solid and strong as you might think that you are. Or you've got folks like the young gal that we prayed about a few minutes ago that are in your school, that are perhaps close to you, little Emily Nur, and you realize that the days are numbered for all of us, even those that are in our younger years. Maybe you're here and you're on the other side of things. Uh, like my 92-year-old grandmother likes to say, I don't buy ripe bananas anymore. Uh, the, the wheels aren't quite turning up upstairs as, as well as they used to. Perhaps the body doesn't get around just on a day-to-day basis like it once did. Or maybe you're watching the headlines. And you see the news again each week that just seems to come again and again of tragedy, of loss of life. And you can develop whatever political opinions you want to, whatever views about rights and weapons and so forth that you want to and whatever we would want to develop. And at the same time, you have to come to terms with the fact that you can't control certain things that happen, even that would happen to you. And to me, no matter what we would do, it's a reminder. This life is passing. This life is fleeting. And therefore, it's a reminder to us of what an incredible blessing the work of Christ is. As I said, our passage today has us looking at the resurrection, but the incarnation and crucifixion are uh, central to this as well. You can look in your sermon notes section if you want to, and you may turn there today even if you don't normally do, because I've got several passages that uh, are from a commentary, several statements from a commentary that are in there that we'll get to in a minute that might be helpful for you to read along with. The main idea is this, because the resurrection of Jesus is a fact because the resurrection of Jesus is a fact. We can be transformed by the reality of it. Doesn't take long for us to get through these verses today to realize that there's something going on that the Corinthian believers are challenged with. And we've seen they're no strangers to challenge. They've got all kinds of interesting views and perspectives on things. But as we come to the end of this book, Paul is coming to perhaps one of the most substantial areas of confusion they've got about the very resurrection of Jesus, this central thing of the Christian faith. We see it in the first few verses and on through the entire passage, really. And it seems that they've been influenced by at least three things. So track with me for a minute, because believe it or not, 
although removed from us by centuries and removed from us by culture and removed from us by geography, a number of the things that they were confused about are also sources of confusion for us today. The first one is Plato. Not the little kid's uh, dough toy that we maybe enjoy, the Greek philosopher. Uh, Plato was fascinating because he had this analogy of the cave. If you go back with me to philosophy 101, if you ever had that one, or maybe Western Civ, and, and his picture as, a, as an ancient Greek thinker was that people, as people, we're kind of stuck in a cave in this world. This world is the cave, and our heads are stuck affixed facing a, a wall this direction, and it's dark in there, and the only light that we see is the light from way back up behind. It'd be like up at the top edge of that ceiling where there's a fire and there's forms, people moving around, and that's reality. And all that we see is, because we're stuck like this, we see it reflecting the shadows from the fire and the figures, the forms moving around, reflected on this wall in front of us. Plato is a pretty profound thinker. He, he, he got some key things that actually dovetail with what we believe in that there's something beyond this life, right? He understood that there are ideas that are beyond just the existence that we see in front of us. But what's the problem? The problem is, is that in his mind, only the spiritual or the mental is real. The physical isn't. We in this cave aren't really real. That stuff up there is what's real. And believe it or not, that seeps into our lives today. It seeps into how we think about the resurrections. The Corinthians struggled with the idea that something is flawed and broken and, uh, and intertwined with our sinfulness as the human body could somehow be resurrected up, could be perfected, could be glorified. Surely it's a weight that drags us down that we should just get rid of. And so they struggled to believe that Jesus had really risen or not that Jesus had really uh, risen from the dead, but that that resurrection was coming to them. Today, we see that in this way, the, the licentiousness that we have in our lives or the legalism that we have. We're either going to manage our morality through our outward behavior in sort of an ascetic lifestyle, or we're going to be licentious people and do whatever we want to with our body as if God doesn't care. Plato seeping into our mindset even today. The second thing we see that they struggle with in Corinth and we do today, maybe more common for us or more apparent to us, is just plain old skepticism, right? I haven't seen somebody raised up from the dead. I don't know if you have. Uh, they hadn't personally the Corinthians there. So the Apostle Paul is going to remind them of other folks that had in their testimony. But we, we just don't believe things we, we maybe don't see. Third thing, and this gets even a little more complicated than Plato, but hang with me and then we'll, we'll move on to some simpler things to digest. If you look in your worship guide, there's a, a term I think stated there, overrealized eschatology. I think you can get what overrealized means. Eschatology just means the last days. We see it back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul was talking to them about others, other matters. But in verse 8, he says to them, already you have all you want. He's kind of being sarcastic. Already you become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign that we might share 
the rule with you. The Corinthians are struggling with this already, but not yet, part of the Christian life. And it, it affects us in all kinds of ways, whether you remember the term over-realized eschatology or not. But we want the stuff of heaven rightly. We are even invited to set our minds on things above. But the hard part is, it's not yet for us. Some elements of it. The fullness of it is not to be experienced until we're glorified. And believe it or not, this shapes all kinds of things for us. We wrestle with it every day. We, we wrestle with waiting and expectation right now, don't we? If you've got uh, if your parents or your grandparents here today, uh, probably about early November, if not early October, the little ones, uh, I want this. I'd like to get this. I'm thinking about getting this. And you had to say, you know what? We're not going to get that right now because we've got this little thing called Christmas coming in a couple of months. Going to have to wait. The, the gift is coming to you, but right now is not the time for you. And we're in that season as believers. This is what kind of drives the whole prosperity gospel, the whole health and wealth message. This is the confusion. We will all be perfectly healthy through faith in Christ. That is true. On the other side, on the other side, and we can enjoy the benefits of prayer and praying for healing in this life. But we don't have a guarantee that this is going to be perfected in this life. Um, we will all enjoy prosperity in the sense that we have a place in a heavenly kingdom to live in, to be with God, that blessing. But we're not promised that now. The Corinthians were struggling with this and they wanted all of it to be present with them now. So they said, we, we've got the whole resurrection now, so we don't need it later. We're not concerned about believing in it later. Take a look with me uh, back at that chapter 15, verse 1, uh, through about verse 10 or so. We won't read back through all of it. But it says this, the Apostle Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. He just reminds us that there is a truth to the Christian faith. There's certain core realities and we receive them. We can be exploring them. And that's a good thing if you're here today and you're just thinking through the things of the gospel, thinking about what God is doing. But there is a receiving, a taking in of that that has to happen as well for young people that are here today. Maybe your parents are talking to you about the realities of the Christian faith. Uh, maybe you're growing in your process of owning it and taking it. We have to receive it, though. It can't just be a message that's out there. It has to be a message we take into our lives through faith. He says that. He goes on. He says, I deliver to you of first importance. <laughs> These aren't trifling little side matters that we can kind of speculate about. Again, he's getting to the end of his message in First Corinthians. And as important as the other things we've looked at are, I think he's coming home and saying, now let me talk to you about this final, really important thing, the core truths of the Christian faith. And then he talks about what that is. Christ died, was buried, was raised. Not a terribly complicated message. Now, you know, in our church circles, we don't mind getting a little complicated and wrestling with the full scope of Scripture. And I think that is a good thing. But we're reminded again that, you know, Paul said, I came to preach Christ and him crucified. We could add and him resurrected. He came to preach what really is a relatively simple message. We're lost without a redeemer or rescuer. God sent that rescuer in Christ. We can receive him and have the full benefits of his crucifixion and resurrection. 
And then he goes on and he says, hey, these things aren't just uh, figments of my imagination. He revealed himself. He showed himself to people who are alive today. And in case you think, you know, he's working an angle or something, he even acknowledges some of them have died. But a bunch of them are still alive. They could testify and tell you. Remember, this is being written uh, somewhere between 50 and 55 A.D., not 20 years after Jesus was walking the earth. So these folks are here to bear witness. Reminds me of that uh, question that I'm sure I have gone over before with some of you all, maybe from here uh, up in the pulpit before as well, about uh, who Jesus is and about his followers. Uh, You're familiar probably with the way that Jesus's core 12 disciples uh, all uh, perished. Uh, Basically, the majority of them died in some kind of horrific way and died for their belief in the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's what they died for. So the question that, that can be raised to us and maybe you would find helpful in discussion with uh, with others around you or helpful to encourage your own faith is would a man die for a lie? Would a man die for a lie? Because the Apostle Paul is getting at the question, did the resurrection actually happen? Is it true? Would a man die for a lie? Yeah, sometimes people do. We see him. We saw him on TV this week, right? Dying for a lie. But it's rare. Part of the reason it's on TV is because it's unusual. All right. So people do sometimes die for a lie. Would a person die for a lie that they knew was a lie? So they're aware that it's not true. Would they die for it? That's even more unusual. It does still happen. Right. Uh, Maybe they have some inheritance or whatever, and they're hoping to pass it on to those that come after me. And so they they know what they're dying for is a lie, but they know it's a lie. Would a person die for a lie that they knew was a lie that profited them nothing? Very few people. And so what we have to believe, if we are going to deny the resurrection, the truthfulness of it, the work of Christ and the truthfulness of it, is that these followers of his, uh, so many decided to die for something that they contrived, that they came up with, so they knew it was a lie And guess what? The only way the Christian message profits you when you die is if it's true, right? It doesn't help you one bit if it's false. Would a man die for a lie that he knew was a lie and that profited him nothing? It's a challenging reminder for us today of the truthfulness of the things we believe. And with all the ideas and opinions out there in the culture of maybe a simple way in conversation, even with those who might kind of challenge you on some of these things in your family or in your workplace to to even walk them through that scenario and let them wrestle with it. You know, it's not a formula. It's not a scientific formula, but it's some pretty good evidence, I think, to consider. Last thing we want to look at in these verses today Is not just the facts of the resurrection, but the centrality of the resurrection. Verses 12 through 19, I won't read them all again, but suffice it to say, uh, in summary, the Apostle Paul says, if this stuff didn't happen for Jesus, we ought to all pack it up and go home. No reason to set up, you know, tables into pews at Cross Creek Church. No reason to be back there giving your time in the nursery. No reason to be contributing funds to the church. No reason to be telling other people and inviting them to Christmas Eve service. Pack it up 
and go home if it's not true. The Apostle Paul says that. I remember in my college years going through the first time, and I, I grew up in a sort of mainline church tradition where I'm not sure, to be honest with you, what many of my pastors growing up actually believed about the scriptures and about what Christ did. And I remember going to a Bible study in my college years at a at a church environment that was a little like that. And they begin to tell us about these new ideas. You know, every now and then Discovery Channel is going to have some new ideas for you in History Channel and, the you know, magazines, maybe Time and Newsweek will come out with some new ideas as we come into Christmas and Easter next year about who Jesus was. We've got the real Jesus. We'll give you the real take on it. Was interesting. One of those ideas is that, hey, all this stuff didn't have to actually take place. This idea of Jesus is kind of nice and comforting. It's kind of a warm fuzzy to know that someone would die for us and even that our sins would be paid for. Those are good things. But we don't really know. We're not sure if this thing's true, reliable, sound. And we don't really want to, like, surrender our lives to this ancient text text and live by it and so forth. So, you know, we like the idea of Jesus, the, the Christ of faith, we might say, but we're not sure about the Jesus of history. What's the problem with that based on the testimony of the Apostle Paul, one of the chief proponents of the early Christian message? It doesn't work. He says if it's not uh, true, if it's not reality... We ought to pack it in. I mean, Christianity is unique that way. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but it's distinct from other world belief systems, uh, many other world belief systems, not all of them, but that are maybe just philosophies or ways of living or ways of thinking. Christianity says the whole thing hangs on whether this actually happened. Jesus was in the world and did these things, not to mention the other things that Scripture testifies to in terms of God's redeeming work. You know, it's interesting uh, being a father of, of four boys. You know, it doesn't take too long for that uh, sort of male athletic ego to get out there a little bit. You know, the prideful boasting side of things. And uh, and it's usually pretty humorous. You've probably been around some some youngsters maybe on the on the playground or whatnot. And, and, and they get to the basketball court, for instance. And uh, man, I can make this free throw from right here. No trouble. Hey, hey, hey I, I can do better than that. I can make this one from the three-point line. Hey, hey, I can do better than that. I can make it from the three-point line with one hand. Oh, no, no, I can do better than that. I can make it from the three-point line with one hand, not even looking at the basket. And eventually, after this goes on and on for a few minutes, somebody says those two magic words, don't they? Prove it. Prove it. And you don't have to have lived in Missouri like I have or to set foot there. We are all de facto members of the show me state. We want proof. Prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. Show me that that is true. And what the Apostle Paul is reminding us of here is that Jesus did do that. He did prove it. And he lists out people. You know, it's like when they have a court trial and they bring in witnesses and so forth. He says, here are the people that saw it and can testify to it. Is there an element of faith to our uh, belief? Absolutely. Because we have to believe that that this is reliable. I'm giving you some evidence today why it is. But the Christian faith is not a leap of faith. 
It's not a believing something that we don't have substantial evidence for. And the resurrection is at the core of that. The Apostle Paul says without it, uh, without it, our, our faith is in vain. We're really misrepresenting God, it says. We're still in our sins. We'll perish. We're to be most pitied. You can read some of the statements from the commentary writer in there. But for sake of time, let's let's wrap up with these application points. You say, well, OK, I understand uh, we're supposed to believe in the resurrection. And pastor, you've given us some good reasons to think about maybe believing that more. What difference does that make? What difference does that really make to me on a day to day basis? Well, I, I mean, I hope we've already wrestled with some of those. But let, let me apply it to just a couple of things specifically in life to help you think about how we can be transformed by a deeper, a more significant belief in the resurrection. And for that matter, the crucifixion and the incarnation. Think about love, forgiveness, generosity, holiness and hope. Let's just take those five things in conclusion today. What is a, a more robust belief, a stronger, a fuller belief in the resurrection do for those elements of our life and our existence? Love. In our own power, you and I pretty much can love those who love us back. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We can do that on our own power. But only those who know that they are secure in the next life can expend love in this life on those who may never give one bit of it back. Love. Forgiveness. In our own power, you and I can accept a recompense of some sort for a wrong done. Right. We can do that. We've been wronged. There's some kind of recompense made words said or compensation or whatever it is. But only those who have the assurance of existence to come can actually look evil square in the face and say, I forgive and truly release the offender. Only happens through those that really believe in some other existence and have confidence in it. In our own power, generosity in our own power, uh, we can toss a few tokens to charitable contributions here and there throughout the year, uh, maybe because we think it's a good thing to do. But only those that know they're laying up treasures in heaven can actually Give with great abundance and joy for the purposes of God's kingdom in this life. Holiness. In our own power, we can do maybe a little bit better, at least outwardly, than the people we see in the news headlines or on crime scene investigator show in our own power. But only the person that knows that he or she is going to experience exceeding great joy in the kingdom to come. In everlasting fellowship with God can can really choose to live set apart in this life and to submit the joys of this life to God. Love, forgiveness, generosity, holiness. Let me do one more and then we'll conclude. 
uh, in our own strength, uh, we can muster up some sort of hope, right? Even when we see tragic headlines like we've seen the last couple of weeks, we can find some kind of pie in the sky reason that ah, it's going to get better tomorrow, right? <laughs> Surely tomorrow would be better. Something like that. We can muster it up. Only uh, somebody who has a firm hope rooted in heaven through the truthfulness and reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be assured, even in the midst of the whole world collapsing, that there's reason to hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for all that he's done, his incarnation, crucifixion, and his resurrection. We pray for those places in our mind and our soul where skepticism comes in, not in a way that sort of helps us to search out the truth and to grow in it deeper, but that is pulling us away from it. We pray that you would bind those things up and instead, Lord, that you might increase our faith. That, Lord, we'd be used as vessels to share that faith and that in the few ways I mentioned at the end of our time in your word today and manifold other ways that you would allow us to apply the truth of the resurrection in a life transforming way. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.